Welcome to the 57th episode of Delica, a podcast between two friends about the latest in politics, society, and feminism in Indonesia and the world. I'm Stephanie Tangkilisan. And I'm Sujin Lee. And this week, we have a very special guest and a frequent guest of the podcast, Karina Basaria, talking about an exhibition that she championed and planned um, about the Ulos textile of the Bataknese community. And in it, we talk about what is Ulos and uh, a little bit of a primer on Batak culture and the function and meaning of Ulos, as well as the exploitation of labor in the creation of Ulos and Ulos as an art itself and how the people who make this art are not being regarded as the artisans they truly are. We also talked a little bit about Indonesian heritage, the complicated issues around cultural appropriation between different segments of Indonesian heritage and what it really means to be proud of the diversity that is our culture, not just the nationalistic culture that we're force-fed by people in power. We also want to take this moment to give a mention to the tragedy that happened We're in Palu and Dongala in Sulawesi. As of today, October 4th, there's been more than 1,400 victims to the tsunami and earthquake that impacted that region. And our thoughts go out to everyone who was affected by this tragedy. And we hope that President Jokowi and the, the relief efforts that are going on over there can continue to work hard and save as many lives as possible. Anyway, back to this episode um, and Carrie. So here's to it. So this week in the episode, we have a recurring guest at this point, Karina Basaria, who just opened uh, an exhibition. And can you tell us a little bit about what it is, Carrie? It's called Ulos Hangoluan Tondi. So it's basically um, to show people the roles of ulos or textiles for those who don't know, like uh, traditional textiles from the Batak society in North Sumatra and how it pretty much shapes us as a person and how it um, kind of accompanies us throughout our life. Can you talk a little bit more about who are the Batak people for people who don't know and and like why is Ula so important in the community in general? For those who don't know, Batak is, I guess, a tribe or like one of the tribes in North Sumatra around Lake Toba. If you don't know Lake Toba, then... Google it. I guess it's a pretty it's a pretty important lake in history. It's also a pretty big lake. <laughs> it's a pretty pretty it's the biggest lake a, in Indonesia. Yeah, it's the biggest lake in Indonesia, and it's the deepest in Southeast Asia. And like its eruption, there's a volcano in the middle of it. <laughs> yes, um, there's a dormant <laughs> volcano in the middle of it. And um, yeah, like when it erupted, it caused like Ice Age all the way to Europe. Like you know the whole Toba effect. If you are a geologist or hashtag former geography student, I see. yeah (laughs) but um yeah so uh we're actually like there's five tribes but we were kind of bunched into one by the dutch because they couldn't be bothered to remember each one of our names because hashtag colonialism yes hashtag colonialism and but anyways uh i'm batak toba so we're very uh we're people like deep in the heart of toba like we're in the middle of it all 
hence the name Tobas, because we're by the lake. But anyway, so the exhibition is about the role of textiles in our society. And uh, our textiles is called ulos, and how for us, it's not just a piece of fabric, but it's kind of a living thing, mm-hmm. um, maybe akin to kris for Javanese or Central Javanese people. If you don't know, it's like a kind of dagger that they sort of like really revere and sometimes worship, maybe. I'm not sure. I don't want to sound ignorant oh, or something. Oh, for sure. It's like a big collector's item. There's spiritual significance to it, right? Yeah. In a way, it's kind of similar. Like that in Ulos? Yeah, it's kind of similar, but it's more uh, prayers and blessings and sort of for future children and their children's children. It's supposed to be like a generational thing that we pass on. To our kids, yeah. So how, what does Olas look like and how is it made? Uh, so it's woven. So if you've seen sort of like traditional weaving, sort of backstrap loom, it's that's how it's made. Uh, it's purely cotton, though like throughout history, we also trade with a lot of Indian traders and their silk. So we do incorporate some of that. Mm-hmm. It's... I guess you can say it's very simple if you compare it to other weaving in Indonesia. But when you really look at it, it's actually a lot more complex than you think. There's really like complexity in the simplicity of it, in my opinion. Like that's what makes it beautiful. Um, and we only do three colors, which is indigo, blue, red, and white. Because that represents our colors. So it's very... It's weaving that you see that it's just like, it's not complex, it's not pretentious, it's humble, but it evokes like sort of this sense of like strength. What kind of textiles are usually produced in uh, for ulas? Like, is it just, you know, for our listeners who might not be familiar with like Indonesian textiles in general? Yeah. How are they used? How are they worn? So as you know, Indonesian textiles for Indonesians who are listening, uh, it's mostly used you know, as clothing. We use it um, as a sarong, right? Mm-hmm. And we do use that as well. But I think ulas is more of a ceremonial thing. Uh, we use it every day, for sure, absolutely. But every sort of textile that we use has a function. So uh, each motif has a different function. Um, who can it be worn by, etc., etc. So I think there's a lot of rules and regulations behind it. Mm-hmm. So the whole concept of ulas in itself, I think, is kind of a ceremony, in my opinion. And the ulas itself, um, how long does it take to make? So talking to weavers that are working there now, they say it takes about... It really depends on, obviously, like the complexity of it. Um, but the, it would take a month to two months. Oh, wow. For a sarung? For a sarong, yeah. By one one weaver, or is it collaboration between? No, by one weaver. They 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 weave exclusively, like one sarong for one. Wow, that's a lot of work. But this is traditional weaving, right? Because there's like three types now. There's like the traditional, traditional sort of like loom, and then there's uh, the more modern loom, and then there's the obviously like machine sort of. And obviously, you can tell the difference, right? Yeah, you can tell the difference, and it can be obviously a lot faster the more modern. The Loomis. So one of the things I found fascinating about your exhibit is that it's exhibiting ulas that's, you know, maybe a hundred years old. It's like really old ulas. How how common is ulas in the in Indonesian consciousness or even in the Batakni's consciousness? How often do they see it? How often do they encounter it? Oh, well, for the Batak, we see it all the time. Uh, we see it in mostly weddings, um, christening, uh, confirmations, mm-hmm. all sort of like 
rights all throughout our lives. We definitely see it. So the general public, I'm not sure if they really know like how important it is. Mm-hmm. Like they know, like when they see it, they definitely know. Oh yeah, that's an olos. You know, that's from North Sumatra, and they use it, and they pretty much usually use it in weddings. If they, you know they they come to Batak weddings, you know, which is pretty intense, mm-hmm. and there's a whole sort of like central time where there's a rite called mangulosi where a lot of the families come and give so much ulos to the bride and groom so they would probably see that and if i do talk to like non-batakins that's that's like their memory of it is like mm-hmm. oh yeah you guys are always like giving these textiles to the bride and groom it sounds like ulos is literally like a fabric that holds people together holds communities together yeah we like to say that the threads of ulos is kind of what makes us us obviously there's different meanings so um we have an ulos which you give to um, an expecting mother when she's just seven months pregnant um which i think is pretty common in indonesia it's a the seventh month marker is is pretty significant and we give it in terms of like oh um we hope that you're gonna have a safe birth and that your child is gonna you know be healthy and etc etc when your baby is christened um it's more of a prayer and blessing thing that there will always be a child of god and they'll be protected and a lot of it is really about protection a lot of it the the sort of the actual physical act of uh draping the ulas around a person itself is sort of like a shield against sort of bad spirits and harm and etc and i think that's like sort of the general pattern in all um different ceremonies and rites what's been interesting in the way it's been covered and how has that differed than like the general reception? The way it's covered is... So what's being exhibited is very old um, textiles. So that's what the selling point was, I guess, in the way that it was covered. It was more about like, oh, these are really, really old, like sort of 100-year-old textiles and stuff. And it's being shown to draw in more tourists and crowds. Um, obviously we were interviewed there, but I guess, um, at the end of the day, they were just more interested in sort of like the heritage side of it when I guess our, (laughs) I guess our narrative is more about the people behind the textiles in a way, I guess, and sort of identities Mm -hmm. behind the textiles. Do you think some of the younger generation Batak people are starting to lose touch with that culture and that? use of uh, ceremonial textiles yeah absolutely um they know obviously they know the existence of ulos and they know that it's a part of their culture but to them it's just i guess a feature or a tool in ceremonial rites Mm -hmm. which i think is a lot deeper than that you know i mean sorry i know it's a lot deeper than that um which is why we aim this exhibition to the younger generation really it's kind of like um it's kind of like dedicated to them for them to really learn about their heritage and learn about themselves, really, as um, Batak people. How is Ola significant to you personally? And what draws you to, you know, like having this exhibition and like gaining this exposure for the print? 
I think having lived um, abroad for so long, you tend to do lose your identity. Like you tend to lose your identity a little bit or where you come from. Mm-hmm. You know, from my personal experience. So when I came back to Indonesia, I was, um, and I've always been really, really interested in Bata culture as a whole, because I think Indonesians know this. When you're in Indonesia, you're really just sort of um, you're spoon-fed nationalism each day, right? That you're that you're supposed to be proud to be Indonesian mm-hmm. and that we're diverse and stuff. Okay, cool. That's all cool. But at the end of the day, we sometimes don't really focus where we actually come from, like because. There are so many um, ethnicities, there's so many tribes, there's so many different peoples and different cultures. And I think that what makes it different and why people were so interested in the exhibition that we did was that there's a lot of storytelling behind it and the meaning behind it. And people were just craving that. People were just craving mm-hmm. um, something more than just, okay, that's a beautiful textile. you know. So I think that's what makes it different. Have you also experienced... Um... In the, and as much as we are spoon-fed nationalism, sometimes it's like capital N nationalism, right? Yeah. Is it also we're spoon-fed heritage even though we don't really know what what goes beyond yeah. the textbook yeah. you know, definition of heritage, of yeah. Indonesian heritage? Absolutely. We, we, we don't know much about it. Like, we know, like, okay, that's a batik, that's an ikatsumba, you know, that you, you, you see, like, different national costumes and you know where it comes from generally. You don't really know the people behind them. You don't really know where it comes from or why it is the way that it is. And this is this is actually really funny because it actually touches on um, ideas of cultural appropriation as well, um, mm-hmm. like between different Indonesian tribes. Because mm-hmm. I was speaking to um, a university student that came over to the exhibition and wanted to interview me because they were doing their dissertation on a certain motif of ulos and... It was used in a pretty famous uh, Indonesian designer's collection, but he had cut it up and everything. Mm. And it was all modern and stuff. And yeah, it's beautiful artistically. There was a lot of conversation um, between us as Bata because we know that motif is reserved for the highest um, sort of ranking members of our society. So we thought, we were like, okay, how much do we want to compromise our own identity in our own culture for the sake of exposing ulos to the general public you know mm-hmm. and for a lot of us for me it was really painful to see because i just know that's a really important textile and that's a really important motif and some people they're like yeah i know and they're, they're kind of like you know half half they're like i know it's kind of like not cool but at the end of the day it's like it makes beautiful stuff but i always say like is it is the beauty of it still the ulos or is the beauty of it is just using the ulos as an accessory and i think that's you know that goes into the talks of like what i said about cultural appropriation people like the beautiful things and they use it as an accessory but they don't really know what it really means mm-hmm. and, it, and it's like a bastardized form of heritage oh yeah in a way and for weavers to cut an ulos is uh is almost blasphemy would you would you have been more open to the idea of modern interpretation of ulas if the kind of interpretation still respected the heritage and the history behind it instead of just like oh here's a cool pattern uh, you know let, let's play around with it yeah 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 absolutely ulas is very um there's a formula to it i think a lot of um woven textiles are there's it's mathematics at the end of the day there's a formula yeah 
So there's actually、um, an app being developed, or like a software, sorry, a software being developed in Sumatra,、uh, in North Sumatra, by locals, by local、um, mm-hmm. IT students there. That where they insert a bunch of、uh, reference and patterns of ulas, and、uh, the computer, I guess, is a sort of AI and machine learning. And they kind of spew out their interpretations of、um, ulas according to sort of the、That's、references、cool. and patterns. Yeah, and、um, it's been woven, and it actually looks pretty cool、um, because it definitely stays true to the patterns of ulas, but you can definitely see that it's modern、mm-hmm. and that it's that it can be used in that fashion. I think those patterns, I think, is you can be used as fashion, you can be used as souvenir, and all this kind of thing. Um, so I guess these more modern motifs and patterns can, in a way,、uh, I guess, support the older, more sort of ceremonial and、um, important and almost sacrosanct、uh, motifs that we have.、Mm-hmm. So you just need to diversify those patterns, in my opinion. I think, like, you can't just use these older patterns for everything. How about from the weaving point of view? Is that an art that's Being threatened by modernization, or or it's it's not really by modernization. I think it's by capitalism. I guess you can you can say capitalism is a form of modernization, right?、Um, In what way? There's a huge issue there of loss of knowledge of weaving.、Um, one down to、uh, machine,、uh, like there's more machines, and the other one, the really really big one, is there's a lack of raw materials. Um, AKA threads that they can buy, because a lot of it is monopolized by certain third parties. We call it toke toke.、Um, <laughs> that basically haul. Yeah, that's such a we, cute word. They haul. <laughs> they haul all these threads and sort of raw materials, and the weavers have to go through them to buy, and they would sell it to them at a you know marked up price, way beyond that it's worth. So it would sort of chain them to the system, right?、Mm-hmm. So the toke will tell them, okay, we've got these customers in Jakarta who wants this. You do it. So they do it, and they will have to pay around three hundred fifty thousand rupiah to make it, and then it'll be done in about a month, and then they'll take it. They'll sell it for two and a half million in Jakarta. But they'll only give two hundred fifty thousand back to the weavers. Wow! For a month or two months' work? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's insane. That's beyond yeah. unethical. That's insane.、Like. Yeah, it is. It's really unethical, and it's really, it's really messed up. And so a lot of younger generation, they're like, you know, their daughters. Don't really want to follow in their their mother's footsteps because it does make sense. They're like it doesn't make money. That makes sense. And a lot of the weavers that I do speak to, and I was like, so why do you still do it? And they're like, because I, I want to share my heritage to the world, and this is what makes me happy.、Mm-hmm. I'm very passionate about weaving, and I love weaving, and I love the act of giving my love to a certain fabric, and knowing that this is going to. Protect someone or be used by a family or something, you know, and it's really sad to hear them. And I said, "So, what is it? The one thing that you really want for people?" And they were like, "Just appreciation, I guess. That we're artists.、Mm-hmm. We're not laborers, you know. We're artisans, and that's 
that's really what I really want to show in the exhibit as well is that mm -hmm. there's something really deep and spiritual and meaningful behind these textiles. It's not just patterns and things, but it's people's lives behind it. Right. Yeah. And I keep telling sort of like interviewers, I mean, like you make a good point about how I was covered or like how we were covered as an ex exhibit. And they were always like just really focusing on the heritage thing, even though I've turned like black and blue, mm -hmm. telling them that at the end of the day, it's about like people's livelihoods. Just just being more appreciated. Sustainable. You know? Yeah, it's, and it's more sustainable, sustainable livelihoods, right? Yeah, sustainable livelihoods and just like, you know, even just a livelihood, because I feel like what they're doing right now is not. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's exploit. Is it's there no protection for, no, for there, them? Like, is there? Okay, I just want to say that those certain third parties are also kind of high up in local government. So you know, it's just difficult. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to name names, but that's what happens. Like when right. we when I really delved into, I guess, the politics of it all. I had no idea that it was so intricate and it was so complex. And there was a lot of hurt feelings. There's a lot of backstabbing. Egos, I'm sure. And then... Oh, lost drama. And a lot of drama. But then when you think about it, it's like all of this is done at the expense of the weavers, right? They don't care mm -hmm. about this crap. They just want to weave. They just want to create art they just want to live and they just they just want to feed their kids but at the same time they want to share their art yeah but then you know the more sort of higher up in the local governments want to commodify it because yeah. the minimum wage i think in general in indonesia is probably around two million a month which is around 150 us dollars right now with the currency well um, yeah might be lower <laughs> uh maybe lower and if they had, if they're able to like at least sell it for two and a half million, and which is the price for the sale in Jakarta, that would be just minimum wage. Yeah, exactly. And they're creating art for less than minimum. Like two hundred fifty thousand is like fifteen dollars for a month's worth of work. Yeah, of which like you yeah. need to dedicate an entire yeah. life to knowing yeah. how to to create this art and weaving. Like I can't even sew a button. So like. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, um, one of the things that I want to do is actually to learn how to weave and just to really appreciate how difficult it is. Like, I'm can And you knit, right? A, yeah, I do knit. And knitting is hard enough. <laughs> can you imagine weaving? Let alone, I, I'm scared to look at a loom and they, they just, they sit there and it's so like organic and they're just like a part of the loom and it's really cool and, they were like, oh, yeah, it's totally easy once you get to it. I'm like, yeah, well, the, everyone <laughs> says that about everything, but I don't even, I don't even dare. So, yeah. So, like, it's just, like, it, it was so sad to hear them just to say, I just, we just want to be appreciated. And we mm -hmm. just want to be seen as more than just laborers because we're not. This is not your everyday work. It's like our history, our heritage, and our identities. And mm -hmm. people don't really appreciate that. We just, you know, they're pretty much making, you know, beautiful textiles for socialites in Jakarta, for Batak socialites in Jakarta <laughs> to prance and preen around their friends and be like, oh, this is so beautiful and stuff. And it really pisses me off. So what can the average person do to help or like to not make things worse i <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna I put think, you on the spot here um maybe not the average person the average batak person i think really needs to educate themselves on their own heritage and culture 
And they need to know that these textiles are not just tools and features in their festa adat or like ceremonial parties. Mm-hmm. And I think who needs to be responsible as well, we talked about this to the journals as well, because they actually asked the same question. And um, I said that who needs to be responsible is actually designers as well. I think they need to be a lot more sustainable in their business and they need to give more appreciation to the weavers. And buy it direct, right? Like, is there a marketplace for people to buy things directly from weavers? Nope. Is there a, you know? Nope. Unless you, unless you actually go there yourself. And I, and you know, I have, and I did. And I was like, hey, I want to buy this from you. And they're like, oh, sorry, it's being, it's already ordered, you know? Mm. So like, even if they have the textiles there sitting in front of you, they'll be like, this is already ordered. And, you know, I could pay more than what they're going to get from these textiles. But they're still not going to... And they wouldn't. They wouldn't because they're afraid of these toke toke because they're indebted to them. It's it's really, actually, it's it's very exploitative. Yeah, They're indebted? Because they have to pay 350000 and they're only given 250000 So where's the 100000 Oh, God. Wow, it's, it's like an endless cycle. How- yeah, it's an endless cycle. This is like beyond unethical. This is like morally bankrupt and evil. It is. What what I'm hearing here is almost like something resembling gatekeepers into Indonesian culture. It's almost like you have to go through this person and this person and this person in order to get to the thing. Oh, and yeah, usually it's so like too. a person of a lot of privilege. Oh yeah, and a lot of power. Yeah, absolutely. And they're usually ninety percent men. Oh. That's what really bothers me is that a lot of these weavers are women and a lot of these textile, so-called textile designers or designers or people who you can buy, you know, um, custom, beautiful custom-made ulos are all men. Mm-hmm. Damn. And I remember talking to one about making, text, you know, ulos textile t- uh, more sustainable and he's like, I've been doing this for six, seven years and I've been trying to do the same and stuff. And it's just not like it's not working. They're so difficult and stuff. And I and I told my mother and I was like, I wonder if it's because his approach as a man is, you know, it's it's hard for them to really digest. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's very confrontational. It's very head on. It's very blunt. They sometimes blame the weavers for being tricky and stuff like that. And it, was, it really bothers me. It sounds and, like there's no equal fitting of like collaboration between designer and weaver, right? There, it's it's treated like, oh, yeah. you know, you're supposed to produce the thing that I'm gonna make into beautiful art, yeah. not recognizing that's already beautiful art to begin with. Yeah, but like, I think people just need to learn more about it and stop being so ignorant and treating this as just like just costumes because it's not. It's people's lives and people's culture and heritage. And respect the the pattern, right? It's all and respect. Yeah, and respect the pattern itself. I know that there's a lot of batik patterns that we don't use anyway because they're right. uh, they're reserved for like Raton Jogja or like Raton Solo and et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think people really know that either. No, they you don't. Know? There's never been a batik exhibition that really talks about batik and its motif and why it is the way that it is. And for example, in Chirabon, you said that it's really beautiful and people don't really know that colorful batiks are Chinese influence. Mm-hmm. Because before that, you know, if you go to solo, traditional batik is mm-hmm. really browns and whites and very dark and very earthy because that's the style. And the Chinese came, brought colors, and then it became, 
you know, Cirebon or like Pranakan Batik, and people don't really know that. And it's the same as Ulos. Like our traditional is red, white, and blue. And then when we traded with Indians, you know, they brought silk, they brought dyes, and then it turned into these beautiful um, Angkola textiles, which is a, a different Batak tribe. So in a way, you can also really study the history of Indonesia as a country and its migration patterns through textile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The true history. The true history. And it's like, and researching some of my own stuff, um, it's like what you're talking about, Chinese style print, it's like, I think it's really strong point. Like whenever sometimes I want to point out at like racist politicians who are wearing colorful batik and who are denying Chinese Indonesians as Indonesians as do you know what you're wearing is influenced by Chinese uh, immigrants and that literally our influence is woven to your back through its textiles. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I think it's so interesting. You know, I gotta say, you know, all of this conversations about Indonesian identity seems like conversations that don't really exist in the mainstream space. Nobody wants to sort of like rock the boat and talk about like, oh, no, uh, we love, we love our culture and our identity. Yeah, uh, but we don't love the people who make it. Yeah, exactly. And who are actually making this beautiful thing that we think is so integral to our identity and so integral to what we love about our culture yeah so i'm what are the next steps for this exhibit what are the next steps for you know your project and raising awareness about ulos there's a couple of ideas that we wanted to do so a lot of the weavers that we spoke to are really interested about learning uh older forms of making ulos Um, Hmm. one of it is natural dyes Mm. so it's being done here and there but it's not really been spread out through all the weavers. Hmm. Uh, so we talked about um, having someone who actually knows natural dyes, which is mm-hmm. we wanted to create sort of like a mobile workshop where we go to different weaving villages and the next and to teach them about natural dyes. Because um, these weavers can't actually go to different places oh, yeah. because one, it takes money. Right. Two, they have to finish their work. And three, usually their husbands are kind of like ugh, iffy about them traveling out of the village that much, like that far. Mm-hmm. So we talked about actually going to these different villages and bringing the information to them where they can talk, collaborate, share with um, weavers who do who can travel and want to travel and usually these are younger ones younger and unmarried weavers are easier for them to travel yeah they can actually go to these places and be like hey yeah i have this you know i have some information to share because throughout history how ulos motives really develop is by sharing and collaborating between different weavers oh, cool. but now they're stuck in different you know villages and they're just there they're not really um, interacting with different areas so it's all stagnant. Mm-hmm. So that's what we want to induce. We kind of want to induce an artificial sort of like... Creative community, um, it sounds uh, like. Yeah, community. is sort of like that sort of organic sort of collaboration that happened, you know, many, many years ago. But now, you know, we don't... We want to... Uh, we want them to be able to talk to each other. Uh, there are thoughts about actually reviving cotton growing in Sumatra because we used to do it. Oh, wow. Just in a small scale, sort of a more sustainable scale in Samosir area, for example, because some people are actually doing it there. But they need to actually, they need to actually, uh, obviously, uh, process the cotton to threads, right? Yeah. And they've also lost that um, the knowledge. 
they've also lost that knowledge. But I did speak to a couple of weavers from Sumba who's more than happy to come to Sumatra and teach it again. Ah. So you're going to have this. this, It's so amazing. And for the natural dyes, it's actually someone from Java who's interested in going and teaching them. So I think it's so fantastic. I think there's this cross-cultural collaboration between different weavers in Indonesia who wants to like, hey, yeah, you used to know how to do this, but obviously you've lost the knowledge. But, you know, let me remind you again so that it can be revived there again. Wow, that's beautiful. So how long is the exhibit still um, going on at Museum Textile? And how do our listeners, if they're in Jakarta, how do they get there and the details? Yes, um, yeah, a little product shilling here. (laughs) (laughs) If you are in Jakarta and if you're interested in the exhibition, it's still going on. It's in West Jakarta. It's actually very close from Plaza Indonesia and Grand Indonesia. The easiest to get there is by... (laughs) Those are the landmarks. Yeah. Hashtag Indonesian landmarks. Hashtag Jakarta landmarks. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so it's close to Tanah Abang, and but it's very easy to go via Sleepy if you want. But just Google it; it's pretty easy. It's relatively easy to get to and come over. It's from nine a.m. to four p.m. I look forward to seeing you there if you guys want to check it out. I think it closes on October seventh. Um, closes right? on October seventh. Is there an Instagram that can? You yes, find? follow us at Tobatenun. That's T-O-B-A-T-E-N-U-N. And I assume uh, it's good to follow that for further updates beyond this exhibition. Yeah, absolutely, because it's not just a Instagram for our exhibition. So Cool. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find more information and resources of whatever we talked about on our website, delica.id. Music credits to John Dealey and, of course, Broke for Free. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. And please share our podcast with your friends. It's the best way to spread the word about Dialogica. If you want to get more involved, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is dialogicapodcast at gmail.com. Or just shoot us a message on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and our Twitter. Please follow us in these various platforms. Our Twitter handle is at DiologicaPod. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's Steph Tank. That's S-T-E-P-H-T-A-N-G-K. Thank you again, and see you guys next time. Bye!